0: I'm Quinn Murphy, and this is In My Chair. I am so excited today because I have one of my makeup heroes on, and I can't believe that she agreed to do this. It is none other than Alex Box. Alex Box is one of the makeup industry's most creative artists. She grew up in Grimsby, Lincolnshire, and moved to London to study for a BA of Fine Arts at the Chelsea College of Arts. Box's studies gave her an opportunity to make installations, experiment with prosthetics, and join London's creative scene, what was a formative period for the artist. Renowned for her experimental and often surreal beauty looks, Box's work continues to chart the correlation between art, science, nature, and the magical. Her editorial work has been featured in a variety of publications such as Vogue, Stylist, Numero, W, another magazine, Dazed and Confused, and I.D., As a makeup director, Box designed the runway looks for a roster of international design houses and designers, including Chanel, Gareth Pug, Stella McCartney, Issey Miyake, Alexander McQueen, and Vivian Westwood. Box's celebrity clients have included Lady Gaga, Azalea Banks, Kate Moss, Sienna Miller, and Courtney Love. A book of her work, which is right here next to me on the table... Photograph by Rankin was released in 2010, and she was also a founding member and creative director of the cult makeup brand Ilamaska. In 2016, she was appointed beauty director of Berlin-based cult fashion magazine King Kong. Please welcome Miss Alex Box in my chair. Hi. Don't Did I get there. through that okay? <laughs> I'm always terrified reading the intro. I'm like, oh my God. I feel like I'm, oh. I'm in in fifth grade again, and still the one kid in the classroom who can't read.
1: Oh no it's it's amazing it it's <laughs> it's, it's amazing to hear your life as well. You know, you kind of sit here thinking, wow, you know, it's it, it's it's a journey you're on, but when you hear it back at you, it's an incredible thing to hear.
0: So I actually wanted to say for people, everybody in the makeup artist world knows who you are but i do have some people who listen um who you know friends and family and then whoever else Uh, i would suggest just googling right now alex box makeup artist so that you can see the world of makeup that we're going to be talking about because it truly is unique to you Mm -hmm. and uh doesn't exist anywhere else and so i just think if you can kind of look through some of her images a lot of what we're going to talk about will um just be even more enhanced I made the mistake yesterday of watching your TED talk and became so intimidated after watching it. I was like, Oh my God, what am I doing? She is incredible articulate. It was called, um, who told you you couldn't draw. Um, well, first of all, the way just visually starting out, you were in this kind of psychedelic loosely fitting outfit. You were so, warm and but had an authority about you and just the way that you talked about makeup and kind of everyone's right to create and everyone's right to tap into who they are before they kind of got you know fucked up is what I took from it and um at one point I actually you were talking about encouraging like a business type a CEO of a company to play Mm-hmm. And by doing that, he kind of uh, let his guard down with you. And you said that he – I wrote this down that I saw somebody connect to something that they had forgot about.
1: Yeah.
0: And I literally like started – I choked. I I don't know what it was about that statement, but I got like teary-eyed. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted to look at myself crying and was upset that I couldn't actually get a full tear. You know, like that dramatic moment <laughs> when you're thinking about yourself. I was like, this would be really good if I could actually get a tear. What was it like creating that TED Talk? Because we all love them.
1: Well, first of all, I had no idea what I was going into. I would be completely transparent here. So I was asked to do a TED Talk. And of course, you know, huge honor. Also, insanely, you know, sphincter-clenchingly intimidating by all the people that have gone before you. Mm -hmm. So immediately, um, I said yes. And then you know what was uh, what was going. How I was going to talk about, and I felt very strongly about, like so, who who told you couldn't draw being a sort of almost like shorthand for. Very early on, we get um, pigeonholed in our beliefs of what we are capable of creatively. So I thought this would be a really good uh, forum and um, to sort of like talk about that and be able to bring awareness to why you know I, I've always been told no, and that I've always uh, you know early on ever always too weird too loud too creative too strange too unusual you know everything was no so i i could have taken that and actually pushed everything back down but i you know very luckily had parents that supported me and um brought that kind of um, belief into myself that it would be supported to be creative and i think that's what you need to do but the ted format immediately um they assign you a coach um which probably a lot of people don't know about but they know yeah so it's up to you if you want one or not but they advise it so i was i was immediately kind of it, it stirred some kind of almost like teenage reaction sort of i don't need a coach you know i know what I, i've talked to people before you know i think i know what i'm doing you know i, I don't want to be manicured into some ted shape and then i started getting really anarchic about it and punk and saying you know this my whole talks about being creative and individual I don't want them to chop me into some kind of shape and you know so I started being really um yeah quite teenage about it and then and then I actually thought you know no listen now, this is a whole new area for me I need to kind of see what the protocol is so I met this uh coach online who was in Israel absolutely lovely man and he said, "Okay, give me what you've got." And I was exactly like you just said—just oh my god, almost like kind of tripping over myself, thinking this is so intimidating and strange to just have this kind of pitch to one person on a Zoom and um, give them my material, as it were. And I thought in my mind that I would—I had an idea, but I was just going to rock up and chat and be open and wing, and, and wing it. And he said, "Okay, let me just stop you." <laughs> <laughs> this, this is Ted, right? And he said, um, "You know." Uh, so he said, "Just give me what you've got." I said, "Well, it's not really there yet." And said, "You know." And then he said, "No, just just give it to me. What you know? Let let's talk. Let's go." So I started to talk, and I, you know, I kind of went in from the gates with you know and all the things that I felt, and he said, "Okay, okay, right. What we have here, and I, um is, I believe you. I I think you have a a very open sincerity for someone that's been." Um, kind of elevated into the position you're in. You, you know, you're very believable and very open and genuine, but you're all over the place. You know? Like an artist. Said, yeah, yeah, exactly that. You know, and I just kind of got, you know, that cold fear that runs through you. Like you, you're totally without a net, and this is just going to mm. monumentally fail. He just said, um, "Give me everything you have. You know, all your notes, all your stories." and he and it was really like learning i mean i recently about a year and a half ago learned to drive and it was literally like learning to drive you know getting in a car not knowing a thing and knowing that i have to do this you know i have to get to the end but um there's going to be loads of painful processes where i really don't know what i'm doing so he said i said look i can't work from a script i'm dyslexic you know cuz he said can you script something And I said, not in a million years. You know, I can't even remember a phone number when someone reads it out to me. He said, okay, so this is what we're going to do. I think what you have here is about five different stories and I'm going to help you bridge those stories visually with your own prompts from um, work that you've done. But to let you as a dyslexic know that there is a navigation that can be creative and visual. And over like a a week and a half or two weeks, we had about seven meetings. And he never at any point sort of gave me a direction other than sort of helped me just understand the the, the journey of, of the story I was telling. And um, that was it. And it was just, oh, my God, I fell in love with him. It was just so refreshing to be told a new way of being and need to be completely open to it and not teenage and not put up any kind of... Um, you had to submit too, right? A submit, exactly that. You had to just give yourself to the process, which is, you know, pretty much everything that I stand for. So it was gorgeous to be, you know, broken broken down and start again uh, and, and, then not, and also learn a new way, which I thought, well, crikey, how many, any, how many times as an adult do you go in blind into things completely not knowing and learning, right. like learning a musical instrument or what have you? So. It was real. It was such a joy.
0: Well, I was going to ask you, when was the last time that you had felt fear or scared about something before that?
1: Exactly that. I mean, I'm I i I'm a naturally anxious person. So at the moment, it's off the Richter scale because of COVID. And I've had to do a lot of work. Um, med- I mean, I, I practice Buddhist meditation. I'm in a Buddhist group. It's all about... Um, renunciation and about um being able to accept and let things flow through you and that is one of the hardest things for me so i wouldn't say that i've felt fear in my capability in a situation but i definitely have felt anxiety around performance anxiety or um because i do performances and on stage um which i know you've 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 seen I Uh, saw,
0: I've never seen anything like it in my life. It was 2010. You did a masterclass in New York. That's where I got your book. Seeing what you did would make me want to, I mean, I would have a panic attack. So to hear that you are nervous, have performing anxiety is actually really shocking to me because what I witnessed was someone who was just a master of their craft and doing something so free and open and seamless—I've never seen anything like it. The looks that you created in front of me—it was like—I I, I mean, I don't know anybody else who I could see do that in real life. So tell me, how how could you be nervous about it?
1: Well, the nerves can be for nef- definitely not during the minute I step over the threshold into this is what I'm about to do. They they've gone, you know. It's it's then I'm just in the process of you know it's like falling in love, you know. I I absolutely. I, I mean, even talking about it, it makes me shiver. I can recall every single moment of every performance I've ever done, and you know, it was it was getting the word performance into the the sort of um, framework of the word masterclass because everybody that hears the word masterclass has a very particular idea of what that would be, uh, and that there's going to be a process of learning or tips or. And I kept saying, you know, th- honestly, this isn't what I do. You know, I couldn't tell you how to do anything, but I can. I can bring you along to witness something that I feel, and and if in that process we're together, um, and there will be an exchange and a connection, which I guarantee will will inspire. But I can't tell you what I do because I don't know how I even do it myself. So I'm along for the, the the trip as well. So that the nerves come from, I think, I kind of beforehand I get this kind of almost overwhelming desire to um, t- to share. And it's almost like when a kid wants to show you something and they're so excited that they almost pass out, you know, it's, it's, that's the the nervous energy is not, not so much about the, I I do worry about things going wrong. Like, you know, I've done things events where the music has failed. I've used dancers and they've fallen over or what have you. But I think that fallibility as well is so much a part of what I am that if it does fall over, it's like, fuck it, it falls over. That's life. You know, it's like, I'm not going to go stop the show. It's, um, that's really important to see things. The mistakes. Absolutely. Because that that is what life is. So, I mean, I've actually really rolled with that when things have, you know, failed as, you know, in the term fail, I don't really think there is a failure. It's just kind of, you know, natural happy accident that leads you somewhere else. But I think there actually, I welcome that, you know, And, and with the TED talk, that's what was really difficult because there was no room for error it wasn't like just wing it, things will fall over, it's cool, you know. It was very much no, you know, there has to be a deliverable, there has to be a take-home message. And I found that for me to slip or slot into something that was so formatable that that was I found it very difficult until I got there and did it. And then um what was even worse was like nine people went on before me. So I had to sit through nine people's TED Talks, which to me seemed like greased wheels, like they were. <laughs> it, 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 God, they were incredible because they'd all learned their script. And, and they were. some of them were past actors. And I was going, uh, we went out for a meal the day before. You, you know, hilariously, we all stayed in the same hotel. And it was kind of like some really bizarre roadshow of misfits. And, um, and we all sat down for dinner and we had a little test run of uh, the TED talk earlier on. Uh and I, I yeah, I was very intimidated because these people just were out the gate, slick. Um and then I got on and sort of did my bits and, you know, said things differently and changed them and felt that something needed to go this way or that way. And when we went for dinner, um I said, you know, I I've got to say I'm in, in awe of your your script capabilities and learning. And they said, well, no, listen I couldn't do what you do. You just went up and it felt, felt so natural like you were having a conversation. You didn't even have a script with you or pieces of paper. And and we were both in awe of our our process, which was actually really charming and really, 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 you know, just I mean, heartwarming that we all felt that the other person was doing it better, you know.
0: That's the thing, the problem, not to go off on a tangent, but that's the real problem with education is that everyone does have a different learning style and different point of view. And we celebrate Mm -hmm. the one that tests well and does a traditional, you know, um, Mm -hmm. academia. But I wish that there had been schools where, like, dyslexic kids could go and be encouraged. And now they do. Actually, there's this amazing organization in the UK called Made by Dyslexia, and they Mm -hmm. have schools for kids to kind of do that. But so – did you enjoy it though? When you were like looking back, did you have fun in the, that 17 minutes that you were on the stage?
1: I did because I, I you know, I'm, I like, I actually feel very alive on stage and I don't know what happens when I, I go on a stage, but I, I feel really peaceful and I really enjoy a room full of people Um connecting with them and feeling like I really need to be able to connect with them, not kind of me and them. It's almost like we're all together. And, I, and I, just the heat and the lights and the people and the adrenaline and the, the story, um, it, I felt like I really needed to share it. And I did, I did enjoy that. But I realized how much pressure I'd put on myself because, mm. like most events that I do, you know, a day or so later, I just crashed like you wouldn't believe you know it's like a, I, <laughs> I must just burn so much adrenaline uh, about about the expectation like I really want people to go away with a feeling that they've been moved or that something was worth it and I guess that goes back to that sort of self-deprecation thing that you really feel that you need people it needs to have been a moment that you've shared but also a moment that was worth people coming to see you in the first place so but I think does that tension
0: have- make your presentation better
1: I don't know. Maybe it does. I think. I think maybe I care. I mean, look, uh, whatever I do, I really, really care about, and I put so much of myself in it um, that it's really difficult not to do it a hundred percent because, that, you know, it's like, well, why if I'm bothered uh, about turning up and doing it and being there hundred percent, you know, I really want that to be able to move and connect and 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 for to sort of reflect for other people to kind of share in that fullness of kind of authenticity and, and being there for a purpose. And it's not to just, you know, win, you know, friends and influence people. It's to actually be worthwhile, you know, like the conversation we're having or conversations I ever have, you know, I want it to be like a worthwhile exchange, not sort of just fluff and stuff. You know.
0: But as a, I'm a makeup artist and I, I mean, I, this feels weird to say, but I'm good at what I do but I'm never going to do what you do. And I'm going to go see your class. I'm not going to leave being able to do what you do. Most people are not going to be able to, or maybe no one because it's you and it's your art. But like, so what are you hoping to pass on? Because it's not like a, a specific um, like technique or paint by numbers. What What is the, <laughs> the main thing that you're trying to um, illuminate to your audience?
1: Creative freedom. Um and the spirit to the spirit to be able to set free things in yourself that have been put up barriers that you don't realize you've had beliefs that you that are set and ingrained that you you that you that don't serve you anymore um I guess it's about being moved to know that you're freer than you realize and that your potential to be creatively free or to be even to just Reassess what your boundaries that you put in on yourself and your capability and your beliefs are so it's being able to kind of be open to yourself and I think that I risk a lot on on stage or in my performances to be able to show that it's it's okay you know it's okay to to be vulnerable it's okay to be able to be wrong and and rediscover and also you you can fall back in love with your yourself and your own process and and be a novice again and innocent and and find areas of yourself that you didn't realize that were i don't know sometimes you're protecting your own Your own fallibility. Your own. You're fearful that you, if you risk something, that there's too much to lose, and that you won't be able to do something, or you won't be able to be creative, or that was you years ago. But now, you know, you're in your groove and you do your thing, and you very, very rarely put yourself at risk in it, out of your comfort zone, especially in your uh, chosen career. Um, Or you've forgotten what initially made you excited about picking up a brush in the first place. So, really what I do uh you know it's funny because in a way you know obviously being called makeup artist as well has always been quite strange because you know I'm somebody that uses so many different materials and uh, you know a lot of it has been on the face and the body and the environment um and other people have have seen that as makeup but I still feel very sort of free from um constraints and I think that that's is quite infectious when I'm around people to say, you, you you don't have to do it how you've been told. You know there is there is a myriad of ways and and your way your own personal way is so deep and rich and to be explored and pushed at and probed and questioned and delighted by. So it's um it's just about surprising yourself and being open to being back in love with the adventure of creativity inside yourself and what initially you were ignited by in the first place.
0: But for you to stand on the hill now and say that, does that mean that you had a time when you were blocked or didn't uh, connect with your creative self or forgot some part of yourself? Like how, how are you able to articulate that? Was it from a past experience where you didn't feel that way?
1: No, no, it's i I think it's being no, I have the opposite. I have like almost this kind of exhaustion of ideas where I get frustrated that I can't write them out quick enough, and I'm just in the wake of them, and that really there's so much to do, so much to create, so much to make, and I'm just trying to make I'm trying to catch up with the the you know the weight of the things that I want to do. I feel sometimes that overwhelms me, it's almost the opposite you know a lot of people say well you know do you run out of ideas and it's no it's the opposite I feel like I'm overwhelmed by ideas that I never I'm never going to make as many things as I want to create and I almost have this kind of anxiety about it you know well how how can I tackle all these things (laughs) you know Uh, there's so many plates spinning but I think when I've been with people that feel that they're stuck or that they they need a creative jolt or they need to be supported to do that, I've realized very quickly that it's a permission giving space that people need an enabler to be able to kind of say, this is okay to do. And by example, by doing these um, play dates or um, performances, it's almost kind of giving permission visually to see someone else go there. you It inspires you to search for that inside yourself or even to be able to know that it's possible I think it's it's like when you watch an exercise video. I think sometimes and you see the person that's doing it and you think, I quite you know it'd be great to have a Pilates body like that. Or, um, but I'm probably not going to be as far out as that. But a bit of that and rubbing off on me, a tiny bit would be magic. You know. So I think it's almost about, or you know, you see a concept car by a car company that's the car of the future. You're never going to drive it, but you're excited to be around the brand that would be visionary or or kind of sort of curiosity to create something that is so far into the future that you want to be a part of what that message is so I think it's about taking tiny bits of the message or a little bit of the dust that's in the air to however that applies I mean when I did a performance last time in London there was a woman that came who was a writer and she just said I suddenly got a release from my artist, uh, my writer's block. Watching you, and I just had to scrabble around to find a notepad. She said, "I, I'm sorry to say, but I, the rest of the, um, the rest of the performance I wasn't even watching you. I was just writing and writing and writing because I just felt something shift, and, and that was so moving to me to know that that had happened in the presence of just seeing somebody else create. Um, that that that's it. That you know, that's the job done. That that's sort of motion or movement in people is is just i feel very humble to have even been able to enable that
0: i feel like just listening to that like um being observant learning to observe is insp- is what inspires you so like if you're ever feeling kind of uninspired or even kind of depressed it's like you have the you always have the ability to kind of um observe what's around you and find some inspiration from that
1: oh, absolutely i mean that's everything. I mean, it's the interpretation of, of your surroundings and your meetings and your conversations and your everyday interactions. It's, the, it's sort of the translation of what that experience is into whatever you do, which is the missing key. And, and I think so many people are, are given the wrong metric to work with, the wrong key. And I think that, you know, that what people are measured by, what they are given as the idea of growth and what success is, is that those conversations have to change. That narrative has to change because it's not working, you know. So you're not only Um, talking
0: to artists here. You think that this could be applied to corporate America or corporate Britain and, you know, or anyone?
1: Of course, absolutely. And in fact, some of the early on, you know, I was doing workshops with corporate um, people to just... Get them to free up their minds. You know, a, a lot of what I do is being hired for my mind. You know, I go into businesses and I go into things like Founders Forum to just talk. You know, to to hypothesise, to sort of what if blue sky um, T shaped people, the whole you know the whole buzzwords uh, that people love to kind of throw around. But essentially, it's about just what if. You know, why is it the way it's? Why are we doing what we're Doing in the way we've been told, you know, why don't we turn that on its head? Why don't we go back to the sandpit and, you know, like I said in the TED Talk, you know, so many people when you you go and see children at a sandpit, there's parents worried about the kids getting dirty, or they take their, you know, they're not allowed to go in their best shoes, or they sit at the edge, or they worry about the outcome. And and essentially, sand is the sandpit is about the freest moment a child can have, and it's sort of its first interaction with controlled mess you know having a box with sand in but it's already got this kind of judgment and outcome you know and it's it's at that point you realize how controlled everything is you know how controlled every moment that we that we grow and develop and even in our most creatively free moments there is a, a judgment or there is an outcome that has to have a variable that is Uh, a yay or a nay and I think that's the problem really so yeah absolutely
0: I I want to ask you about something I was going to ask you later but it's kind of here so sometimes you do have a judgment like I'm sure you've been on set a lot since COVID and you you might have a client and there might be seven people from a corporate office on zoom (laughs) remotely and everybody's going to weigh in and for that day you've been hired and mm-hmm. so you can't just say, this is my creative expression and whatever. This is a time when, on some level, you need to please some someone else. How do you balance your own creativity when you're in a, a place of commerce or, you know, where you do have a boss to please?
1: Well, um, actually, transversely, I, I haven't been on, on any shoots because I don't, do very much physical work anymore i i work almost purely digitally um i and i have done for for the last year and a half um and also it i i am the art director and the creative director of everything that i do and i haven't had a boss for a long very long time um so that's the goal (laughs) Yeah, you know, just become the boss yeah just become the boss I mean I I um which is you know it is a fantastic position to be in it I mean of course it is um but I it's also a difficult one because it's not as frequent as it would have been if you were working for somebody or being on set or or um the uh, doing that um
0: but surely, so, well, you can remember being on a shoe,
1: absolutely, yeah, and of having course. someone
0: I mean, you know have their opinion of what they think absolutely. it is,,
1: yeah, yeah, so i in those situations, I think that's that's what I always used to find very interesting about the whole commerce side is that i I used to sit i mean obviously you know, um, yes, I mean, the last time I worked with somebody, definitely and it, it you know it's a brief it's it's a commerce it is um. Working with Izzy Miyake and doing uh, Paris Fashion Week, and I mean, I absolutely relish a brief. I love. Um, I am a people pleaser for sure. You know, it's oh. it's it, it, it. Yeah, I know it's funny because you think, well, how can you be anarchic and do it your way, but also how can you um, be a people pleaser? So in in when I say people pleaser, I kind of mean a, a conundrum solver. I you know I want to be able to find the most perfect result to the um, brief or puzzle so with when I get asked to do work I mean obviously I've got a very unique way of working and I don't get the the day-to-day jobs that anybody even when I was really in the thick of makeup I just didn't get booked like that you know it was always an art based thing or a project or something that was um, even if it was a beauty story it always had a box Esque slant and I was I was hired for that so like I say I didn't I didn't necessarily work as much as a lot of other people or work for as much money as other people did but when I got the projects they were very um unique and and definitely I was asked my opinion so that did really help in what we're talking about here but I really wanted to be able to kind of make something that was had a presence in it that was a, a creative um had a creative intelligence to it but it was obviously fitting the brief and like how can you work on that and how can how can you make that work with somebody whilst taking their opinion on board but i think that what i found really interesting in that way is that it was the language that people use and that actually so much of that job was about listening to how people ask for something you know i could see people going loggerheads and, and clashing really badly but I was thinking you're not looking at the sort of semantics of their language their body how they approach a piece how they talk you know so I look very much into the side the sociology and the psychology side of mirroring understanding how people speak how they stand what are they not saying but what they're saying with their body and what they really truly are asking and when I say people please I mean more like a people understander you know what is you know I I, I met somebody wants I just you know just absolutely couldn't meet eye to eye with you know they were um, sorry I just had to get my puppy out of the room That's a, I love <laughs> they were, <that> <laughs> they were um, I was thinking why am I clashing with this person why are we not seeing eye to eye and then I sort of realized that they were using a, a very different physical visual visualizing language than I was so when I mirrored back some of the sort of tonality but also when i was i would say i feel this I, my gut instinct is this and they would say i'm moving forward let's roll with this let's take this somewhere so they were talking in journeys and i was talking in feelings and it just didn't work so it was kind of mirroring or understanding that their language wasn't connecting with me in that way so i kind of changed slightly the way i wanted to frame the um, you know the situation and it immediately worked and so it was you about- came to
0: them you 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 adopted their kind of visual language. Yes,
1: absolutely. Because it, in a way, it was that's all that was missing. We were both saying the same thing. So you know, I, I realized very quickly that to move, to, to, for this to actually gel and work, that there had to be a, a, of course, not compromises, but sort of understandings that were just really fundamental. You know, things that. And also just being able to listen to people and and understand where they're coming from uh, as a as a creative or as a you know somebody that is coming in as an art director or what have you you know what really what what do they really need you know what does what what does this situation need you know what does this brief need and I think there is a way of bringing your um, knowledge and presence and and having and being heard but you have to I think you have to approach it with an intelligence of understanding and reading the room and being able to know, especially early on when I was really young, you know, having to know where you can assert that opinion and where to be able to um, park that opinion. But definitely I've never been one to not have an opinion. And that has worked against me, believe me, in the past with certain people. I've definitely not worked a lot because I've got an Tell opinion me what that
0: back. would look like. You like on set <laughs> saying, uh, you know, yeah. this is what it is? Uh huh.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a, a very classic, a very, very, very classic situation. I will omit uh, all names, um, but I was with a very, very, very big photographer and very early on in my more makeup, you know, more beauty career. Um, and everybody's eyes were on me because they didn't know I didn't assist anybody I came out of art college I came from nowhere you know nobody knew why I was there or how uh and there was a there was a suspicion about that absolutely but also I was there so you know there was a reason I was there so well, I'd done the model's skin um and she looked fantastic and and she was really glowing and she you know I did a series of things with kind of massages and heat things and preparation which I was really into uh, you know the idea of bringing as much from the person as possible without product was something that I really kind of prized in you know using essential oils using body massages you know hands talking sound all sorts of things to be able to create an environment around the model to make her feel as good as possible so that was really important to me anyway I've gone through this process she'd gone on set and there was a sort of a natural pecking order, as there is, and also, like I say, a very a wariness of why I was there. And um, the hairdresser said, who was very um, close to the photographer, said, "I think there's a dark shadow under the eye and around the eye." And I, and everybody kind of pursed their lips to look at me, you know, to sort of think, "Oh my God, you know, this is you're going to get it," you know. You've made this big yeah. dark shadow under the eye, and I could see that the photographer's um, lighting uh, assistant had was holding a um, a branch that had a leaf on it that was casting the shadow on the eye. Um, now, in that situation, most people would probably just suck it down or or are expected to, but I could see that this this leaf was casting the shadow, and it definitely wasn't anything that I'd done, um, and I said i I just had this kind of like you know yeah make or break moment where there was all these art directors and and um branding managers and everybody looking at me like i should go over and try and sort this eye out you know and i just said i actually think it's you know part of me saying but it's the photographer's lighting um around the eye it's the it's the it's that shadow being held by the assistant and everybody looked at me like whoa oh my god new work you know, you are not going to work again, you know. But I had to say it because it was true. And and the photographer swung around and said, oh, it's my lighting, is it? And I said, in this situation, yes, it is. Uh And he sort of winked at me and everybody, um, you know, he went, oh, I actually know you're right, it is, and kind of winked at me. Uh Definitely surprised, but also kind of, the green, you know, and, and had, um, probably
0: had respect.
1: He did later on that when I actually saw that photographer again. Even though I didn't work with him again, by the way, uh, or on that <laughs> shoot again, um, I he said that was that really took guts, and I really admire what you do and how you do it. And I just want to say that was, you know, that was a real moment. That was, you know, that was great. But um yes, that was a real crossroads for me because I I know you could have gone over and fussed the eye and sort of, you know, maybe talk to, you know, I but I, I just couldn't do it. And, and I think that's been my, that's kind of been the, my compass then now and forever. And definitely why I don't, and haven't worked as much as probably I could have done. But it's did you quite... want
0: to work with the, with more in that arena or did you want to be booked no. on the jobs that weren't conceptual?
1: <laughs> um, no, I didn't. And I think that that's why it was really that's why I think you're always where you should be. You know, I have a real you know, if you really if you're really true to yourself, you know, you're where you should be all the time. And I think that for at that moment, um, I felt like I you know, there was a deep belief that, you know, I'm an artist and and my artwork is always gonna be what drives me, not where the industry or my agent was trying to pitch me for you know I just thought I'm such a a square peg in a round hole here you know I want to be the creative director of of a brand I want to own the brand to own the company that owns the company or you know I I, I had a sort of a bigger I always wanted to be yeah I always wanted to sort of be the art director you know not not the the person on the on set you know it was it was a uh, yeah, it was a, it was a push and pull situation with me at that point, very much. So, yeah.
0: You said that when you were in art school, they didn't know where to place you. Yeah. Do you think the fashion industry knows where to place you?
1: I think um, it doesn't. No, I, I don't think. But I also think that that's changing. I mean, I think the industry, as it as we know it, it, it is is going. You know, it's gone. If anything, it, it knows it's on a burning platform. You know, sustainably. Uh, and financially, and and I think that the world has changed beyond all reason and and good. You know, I'm pleased about that. I'm, everything needs to break and reform better. Everybody needs to be better. You know, and I think that it for a long time it's coasted along on a very archaic view of itself, and and I I, I don't think I fit because I wanted it to understand me, but whilst working in a in a in a framework that doesn't want to have somebody that doesn't fit. So I think that it was a kind of a, you know, it's almost like, a, oh, no, it isn't you, it's me. It's like that end of a relationship where it's like, no, no, it's not you, it's me. So, it, you know. so it, it's that so that's what had to happen really is to kind of just break away to be able to find my own way, which is, you know, I still work. Um, obviously, I'm the beauty editor of King Kong, and and that's a predominantly art and fashion magazine, but it, it's fashion their way. And I think that very quickly I found people that are approaching fashion as a um, a framework but not necessarily as a di- you know a, a, a dogma you know they've found their own way and that's why the Gareth piers and the you know the Vivian Westwoods or people that have done it their own way were attracted to working with me or McQueen or it was always as a as an artist foremost and as an idea bringer well you um, don't fit the- into
0: the confines or the contrived uh, structure of the fashion industry, basically
1: no no, and i th- and I think that's quite I, I think, like any business, you know if you fit and you get in the groove, you zoom along, you know square wheels don't work and and I think that you know or you have to build your own car, so I sort of took that as a a very big learning curve to you know I'm very grateful for lots of people that I met along the way that also felt the same.
0: Do you know where to place yourself?
1: Yeah, on my own planet, I think. (laughs) (laughs) But you, You I I guess you have. On my planet, yeah.
0: I also related to you when, um, and this is kind of something that I'm feeling is coming out in the conversation, is you find a lot of power in um, kind of the word no or people confining you it was like yeah. even when you were talking about i don't need a a coach for this i it's me or art school didn't know where to place you or the fashion industry was too small what is it about you feeling people putting limitations on you actually um what does that do for you
1: i think it makes me well i'm an only child for a start and i think um i think there's a sort of a a unit um belief where you're quite a spartan you know i i crave um I crave people, but from a distance it's a strange it's a very I think that maybe that 's why me being on stage really works where you you're, you're to, I fear the group, but I also want to be a part of connecting with a group so it's it's a dynamic where I feel happy alone but also want to connect um, so I think once I feel that somebody sets a sort of an idea of what you are, I just naturally want to break that. I need to unpack that probably and kind of really look at it, but it's a, it's a, it's a, like a sort of innate. Like my dad was um, a Greenpeace activist when I was growing up and would like kind of chain himself to trees so they didn't get chopped down, and my and my mom was fiercely independent, in, insanely independent, and they both had this kind of oneness where they they were a couple, but they were very alone, and I think that there was this kind of defying the and especially my dad being you know um, um quite vocal in in the anti you know see um no cruise missiles and early sort of vegetarianism and greenpeace and the environment there was this questioning of authority but also refusing to be just take the dot you know the the um the sort of the word that you were given and it was it was to be pushed back and questioned and and i think that that's you know, people really need to, to sort of confine you and need, really need to identify you, to be able to pigeonhole you, to be able to file you. And I think I've always slipped out of that net. I wanted to be naturally undefinable because I think I delight in making other people question whether that's good or bad. I mean, obviously, visually, um, as a sort of early on, as a teenager, I did so many um, sort of creative things about the way I looked, but also was... You know, very, very gothic and but quite extreme with my looks. And that got me into all sorts of dangerous situations because I kept living in a very small town. And um, But even then, even in the goth sort of circles, when I moved to London and went to these goth clubs and started doing club doors and stuff, I... I, I didn't like the fact that you had to be somber and, and I'd go in, you know, in, in sort of bright acid colors and I almost got kicked out of goth school and had to sort of hand in my goth passport because I was too jolly. And it was kind of, <laughs> it, it was, it's just that thing of like, whatever I was given, I wanted to push back at it. And I, you know, that deep seated fond childhood thing. And I, you know, obviously probably be able to sit on a um, psychologist's couch and, and, pay them a fortune to tell me why but i think it's just a it's an innate questioning that i always feel like it needs to be questioned it needs to be pushed back on um well i actually wanted to
0: ask you about your personal style because america when i think american women really want to be sexy you know we like even the long hair and everything european women usually in my experience want to be cool but Mm -hmm. you you i mean you have a a white stripe in your hair, you wear whatever you feel like wearing and you have a very unique look. You know, we're forced, like when you look at my Instagram at like the suggestions, a third of it are guys trying to look sexy. Like we have a very kind of collective unconscious in America of like, what is sexy? You could be that. You could be a woman who wanted to portray herself as sexy. Why, um, why is that not important? Or do you feel like what you, the way you put yourself is sexy?
1: It's really interesting that because I, yeah, I definitely, yeah, I definitely feel sexy. Um, it's my I think you're sexy.
0: beautiful and I think you're beautiful okay. as you are now, but I think that you could have so easily gone into that. I, I want to look com- commercially beautiful.
1: Sure. Sure. I mean, I'm never going to be commercially beautiful. It's just um, impossible. <laughs> um because of and I, this is i mean, if we be really really honest so when i was growing up um i used to get really bad heat rash on the back of my head and so my mum used to cut my hair really short um and i looked so much like a boy that even at school um people uh, when i you know first started school everyone thought i was a boy um and then even when anybody new came they, they you know i'd have to explain i'm not a boy even though i'm in a skirt uh and even when I wore red lipstick, people would, you know, I remember somebody coming to the door and saying, "You know, is your is your dad in, laddie?" Um, laddie being a, a word for a boy. Right. Uh, and I think I, even in lipstick, people think I'm a boy. But I also kind of loved it, and I and I loved the fact that I, but definitely had an insecurity that I just didn't look like the pretty girls. You know, I didn't look like the girls that seemed to be getting. The boys in a certain way, um, or getting those looks, you know. And I think really early on, you realise what your pecking order is, almost like who who are the the girls with, who were doing this, who are the boys who were doing that, who's the hunks who's the jocks, who's the 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 cool kids, who's this. And I just thought, you know, unconsciously, uh, uh, unconsciously though, had this incredible support for my parents that they loved me, they thought I was beautiful, they they'd say. Encouraging things about me wanting to, you know, I wanted to look like Boy George. I wanted to look like Grace Jones. I wanted to look like people that were just so not the conformed idea of, of, um, who are all instantaneously beautiful, but don't get me wrong, but had right, an, right. An, an outside of you and a, a confidence of a complete unique look. And I just, um, gravitated to, to them and like Toya and people like that because I just didn't feel like, I felt like, authentic and genuinely attractive but I didn't fit into these kind of ideals of prettiness and I think very very quickly I learned like I'm so not that that I'm going to go 3,000 miles the opposite direction so I shaved my head when I was about um, I shaved my head when I was 9 or 10 um, and I went into school in sort of boys clothes and a shaved head and it just blew the headmaster away he was really angry um, I was sent to the headmaster's office most days for the way I looked, um, but I got—I I guess I kind of like elicited some kind of joy out of being so confrontational, uh, and that became the defined who I was. And that, be, and in a way, because I also realized very quickly that making people laugh stopped um, you from being—it it made you safe in school. I mean, I don't know what your school was like, but mine was really tough. I mean, it was a yeah. really of school and if you were Same. funny you you dodged you dodged the bullies. yeah so shaved head looking like the weirdest kid the weirdo of the school but also being really funny um I was just a mascot I became this kind of mascot that people wanted to protect because it was I was called panda as well which is quite funny because my name's um Alexandra uh and I had a next door neighbor that used to have a really strong lisp and used to say oh it's panda and he called me panda and it just, it just stuck so I was called panda so panda was the school weirdo mascot that was funny so I didn't get beaten up for looking weird I made people laugh the minute somebody started to have a go at me I made them laugh so I I learned about survival about standing out was what kept me kind of sane and authentic but making people laugh is what saved me so there was this kind of yeah this desire to antagonize people but also to be in the right way so it was a confrontation of physically looking different but also accepting because I was funny so I think that's been the sort of the balance between being visually very different but also having a a belief that you know my I think what attracts people to me or men and women is is that I'm myself, you know, and I don't look like other people and, and that's, and that is, has its own sort of intriguing quality, I suppose, because
0: I I imagine you you don't even have to answer this, that people are very attracted to you because people who I know in my personal life who are like, take it or leave it and just themselves people swarm to them. Well,
1: it, Oh, well, that's very kind. I mean, I, I think I think um, I'll have to think. Uh, I mean, I, I've always feel like no one ever chats me up. So no one ever, 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 ever has chatted me up. <laughs> because you it, because
0: you're intimidating.
1: I think so. Yes, I, I'd like you know that's what you tell yourself instead of like crying into your sleeve, thinking you're the know, world's well, most ugliest person. Um, right, but but also cause... you
0: don't go, oh, I'm intimidating. Maybe I should put on a pink dress.
1: No, no. In fact, if anything, it's like. <laughs> I go the opposite way it's like you know if you can get through my filter which is uh, I guess the way I am and the way I look then the one that got through is the one I'm with basically so someone that, that the ones that don't um don't mind that usually tend to be the ones that I'm super close to and I'm not close that close to that many people because It's funny because it's like, I don't know if you know Daniel Lismore. I mean, he's like the sort of Lee Bowery of now, the London scene and has been for a very long time. And, you know, he'll go out in, you know, with like 20 lampshades on his head and he's like six foot three and, you know, absolute walking piece of art. And people won't, you know, they just stare at him. You know, it's that somebody that absolutely um, is so, so striking and, and obviously very, very, very individual. But I mean, I just don't, see anything other than the person so immediately would chat to daniel and, and he'd chat to me and, and it, we realized that in this room in a gallery opening we're the only people that would actually speak to each other um that's kind of what i mean is that you, you takes on to know one and i, and I think that you'll that i i naturally um have probably created a filter of myself you know to be able to kind of wheedle through the people that i really do want to actually spend time with and if you can get past something that i don't think is intimidating at all but obviously you know other people have found intimidating um then 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 they don't see see the artist they see the person which is really lovely and those are the people that are probably genuinely relaxed in their own body and skin
0: yeah it's like combining like terms you know
1: yeah yeah it's funny though because I, i do think that that i and it's like when i go to the school gate and pick my son up you know i do always generally have a look on uh, because I love clothes um and you know it'll be eight in the morning or something and I, I went the other day in these like a ginormous platforms and um red entirely red outfit um with a great red, red trench coat and red hat and 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 the headmasters always I mean it's such a gorgeous school the headmaster always loves to see what I've turned up in but for me it's It actually makes people smile. You know, people are, you know, all the mums that I know, it's not an intimidation at all. It's a real, like, genuine happiness to see on a really dull morning, somebody in a great big red hat. And I sort of feel, and it sounds sounds a weird thing to say, but I really love the fact it makes people laugh and smile. Uh, And sometimes, obviously, just think, oh, my God, what? You know, but even in that, it kind of elevates the moment away from the drudgery of just run you know it's it's a fun moment it's a bit of theater and i actually really don't mind being the clown in that way i don't mind being the, the focal point of a bit of theater because i actually find i derive a lot of pleasure out of making other people smile i guess in that way
0: i love that i wanted to ask you i saw a picture of you a long time ago and you were back i think you were backstage and there were a bunch of models and you were touching up uh let's say a model's lip and you had your infant son in a sling mm-hmm. across the front of you i've mm-hmm. never seen someone working a at work or b backstage in that kind of hectic environment with their with their child let alone on them was that feminist
1: it's just reality isn't it um i in that that shoot uh was a shoot so I just set the the scene for that. Very again, that was one of my own shoots where I was the art director as well as doing the makeup. So I was in I was able very luckily to take my child to to work because I know a lot of people are not in that position and maybe not had a client that would understand. So I was the client, so I was able to do that. But also the most important for me thing for me is my son and my partner and my work is vital and like blood in my veins but also it's it's about what their needs are first you know what my son's needs are first and at that point he couldn't he couldn't go to sleep unless he was laying on me uh and I was um looking after him obviously as well and needed to take him to work with me and it was really um important for me for him to be able to in that moment, you know, I had to do the model. She had to be on set. We were running very late. But it was also important to me for him to be comfortable and to be soothed and, and to be on me. And, and I, But I had to be able to do the job at the same time. And I think that image went viral and became very important for people because it stood for, A, a lot of people didn't. I'm very, 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 very private about my private life and I never ever talk about it or post anything about it, and made a very big decision early on to never post pictures of my family, what I do, what I eat. I mean, I don't think anyone's interested in in that anyway. But I, I really think I keep it very, oh, very. Oh, they private.
0: are. <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you been on Instagram lately? It's like, look at my no, cappuccino. No, keep going. I, I want to hear the rest of the story.
1: Well, yeah, this is it. You know, I made a decision very early on to keep that really private because that is something. Your digital legacy, you never get back, and I don't I don't want to be able to um ever expose my son to anything other than what's absolutely real in the real world and really happening. So it was very important to keep that private. So I was doing the makeup and I was holding my son and I was balancing this airbrush and a photographer who's a very good friend of mine just took this like super candid moment snap for me because he's just said he's heavy, you were balancing him, you were doing all these things at once. He said, I just had to take a picture because um it was just really inspiring. And then he gave it to me and I could see that obviously my son's face was, you know, you couldn't see him, it was on the back, and it was just a gorgeous moment. And it was also a very I was very, very concentrated and I hadn't realised in that moment how much all those things about being a mum and and um being an artist uh were all in that shot. And I think that it was a really important shot for me to share because I had met so many people, including my assistant, who I is, now got uh, ex assistant, assistant who's now got two children. But at that point, everybody was really being sold and still is to a certain extent. This idea of the sort of fashion widow, uh, or uh, uh, male or female, that you have to be married to the job with no life Absolutely. other than the, the job, you know, and, and that real life has to be kept very far away and I just actually think without real life there is no inspiration and there is no life so it became very important photograph I think for people and um, I'm really proud of that I mean I didn't think in a million years that 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 would what would happen with that picture happened. but I think I got so many people um, writing to me after that and saying thank you so much for that because it just showed the humanity of what we're all You know, we're all juggling, but also that you can, and and it is, you know, inspiring to have children and and that to be part of your. If anything, I became a better artist after I had my son. You know, and and I think that it's not talked about enough. It's there's always this kind of yeah very Spartan cold idea of 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 what the um the uh, industry sort of expects, and I actually think it's yeah it's that has to change also.
0: I love that. And I think that that image was so powerful because everybody had, well, I, I can't speak for everybody. It, it, it evoked a reaction because it's, I've never seen it before. So, you know, it's like mm-hmm. you go through all the things. Well, why is she have her kid there? Oh, but I guess she does. And it works. And it, it makes, mm-hmm. it made me think, you know, like how do, how did I feel about it? And ultimately, of course, I think it's amazing, but um, it's so modern. It was such a, a, For me, it was like everything you hear about women and working and balancing family life. And it was kind of all in that one picture. So I loved Mm. it. Mm.
1: Um,
0: I wanted to ask you, you work on so many different platforms. You do makeup, you do fine art, you do um, a lot of digital work now. I wanted to start Mm. with makeup specifically because I torment myself and I actually enjoy it about Doing something that's chic, I want everything in my kind of fashion celebrity orbit to be chic, even if it's grunge. it has to have some kind of elegance to it but when you're doing when you're painting on a canvas, you don't care if it's chic or not it's a piece of art when you're doing it for makeup, does your work have to be chic?
1: I think the balance for me is is the the balance between it being having its own narrative and its own presence but also being beautiful i think uh-huh. i i even if something is extreme and has a sort of almost diff- really difficult subject matter it has to have a beauty in it where it it's just defined by its own um balance you know and the balance for me is everything you know it's like um it it inhabits its own world fully so it's like when you you know, nature is about the biggest sort of barometer of of balance and beauty for me, because it's it's chaotic, it's purely process driven. You know, a plant isn't aware that it's beautiful, that's something that we've bestowed upon it. You know, it's not it's purely functional, it's it's evolved in pure function and we've um bestowed the idea of beauty on it but that's the kind of thing that's incredible about nature is that it just has this perfect balance you know perfect hue symmetry placement um evolution so when i'm creating something whether it's a painting or whether it's on the on the face um, and it's a it's got its own it's you know body architecture it has to have boxes that stick to me and and definitely it's that... Innate balance and beauty in its totality. So it has a, it inhabits its own world and it's beautiful. It might not be beautiful to some people; might be, you know, alarming. But there's got to be an entry point where you know it, it's balanced. It, you can appreciate that it, everything is humming at the same vibration. And and I and I do think that I I have that innately, and I, I'm very, I, I question and talk about this a lot, but. I think you kind of have that. You know if something's offset. You know if something's weighted one way or another. And I don't know if that you're just born with that or it, it's just in you that even if it's a paint splat, it's a paint splat with tendrils that go this way instead of that way. And why does it work? It just does, you know. And it's kind of, it's almost like don't question alchemy, but it it has to have a beauty in its balance and its totality and in it, in its believability. So I think that that's the... For you, you say you shake, and mine is, for, mine is this kind of balance.
0: But can I, Because I wanted to ask you, you said, I don't know if you're born with it or if it can be taught. Can what you do be taught, or is it like some people are born with rhythm and some people can sing, and it can mm-hmm. be improved upon and expanded and technique can be applied, but you have to have that anointing or that level of talent to begin with?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's in, it's really interesting because I remember someone saying you can't teach feeling. And, and I think that, I think you can awaken feeling. I don't think, I couldn't teach, no, I couldn't teach somebody to be me. I couldn't, you couldn't, you know, we could all couldn't be in um, replicas or or just work with a maestro and, and, you know, be that. I think everybody is their own version of, of and has their own capability. I just, it's, is finding that ignition that actually enables the honest ability because it might not be I mean I've had people that have worked with me and decided they never want to do makeup again because it's I've what they've seen me do is not what they want to do and it's also made them realize that they don't actually want to do makeup um
0: <laughs> always inspiring
1: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I You really, really hate makeup. Um, but yeah, it, but that was a really positive thing. They went on to, you know, they went on to work in the music industry and are incredible. So it was, they. I think sometimes we position ourselves in what we think we should be. And it it, it takes something quite big to be around or to something to happen to make you realize that actually you know, I mean, I went into fine art college as a painter and realized I was the worst painter You know, I did because I wanted to do everything in multimedia. And I was really trying to be an abstract painter and I was terrible. Um, but I kind of had to say that to myself and I almost like, you know, forced my own opinions of myself and my ego out into the open and say, actually, this isn't working at all. You know, this doesn't naturally gel. It needs to be not just on a canvas. It needs to, you know, be a film or it needs to be a photograph. And I think that I had to try and, and work and 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 also be a novice at lots of new mediums to see what you know what your capability is and if that is the language if you're singing the right in the right you know um, tune it, you have to find what the hymn sheet is you know and I, and I think that that we, we don't often we often go in, especially if you talk about makeup you, you sort of go into makeup and it might be that you're an art director but you've been funneled into makeup and you're kind of making a go at it and you you've reached your you know sort of comfort zone but actually you're seeing more than the makeup you might be seeing the whole shoot as a totality and it might be that you kind of move into art direction but not being given that ability to actually explore that I think a lot of the time people miss their panoply of capabilities but I I do think that I do think you are born with an innate feelings uh, about balance and um, and colour and and uh, creative sort of a, a creative interpretation because it's very hard sometimes I know I've met loads of people who are hypothetically and their hypothesis of what they want to make is such a vision but they can't physically make it and that's really hard because you know they, they know in their head they could do this and it could be like this but how do you extract it and I think that is when it is good to work in teams and it is good to work with people that you can see different modes and different ways of creating but it might not be what you want to do and when I say you know I, I've worked with people and they don't want to do make. it's not necessarily they've been turned off it it's more that they've been turned on to something else by seeing one way and knowing that that isn't the way they want to do it but it might be a different way that they want what, what their where their passion truly lies so I think that um, everybody has the ability but I think sometimes, you know, certain balances and and vibrations and beliefs are, I don't know, maybe they're just in there from the from 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 right from the beginning, from the sort of conditioning of your life. I don't know because I think also there's a that's already sort of setting it out as if there's a good and a bad, and there isn't there isn't a better and a worse, and a, uh, there is just stuff. It's kind of how. Our conditioning has interpreted the merits of what is successful and what isn't, what's good and what's bad. But I do believe in natural symmetry and balance. And, and my closest sort of critic and the thing that I measure myself to is nature. Yeah. So I feel like if this is believable and orbits its own universe and is entirely believable as in its own entity, then it's worked
0: is everything the same level of high art is makeup equal just as artistic as digital as a fine paint as painting
1: absolutely yeah it's just another medium i mean it, i think that's um i think that's that will change because digital is in its infancy and there's a still a natural suspicion about anything technolo- technological because it feels like it should be cold or Without emotion, and I challenge that. I mean, I, I'm working in lots of different areas where I'm working with the notion of what tech is to tech people, because I mean, predominantly it's been very male. It's been quite cold. It's been driven by huge money in the gaming industry and fantasy industry and the porn industry and and industries that have lots and lots of money and want a very particular aesthetic, and it's usually has been driven by middle-aged white men. Like everything. Is, like everything.
0: <laughs> so the other side of, of the technology stuff, and it's actually how I connected to you, which led to you being on my podcast, is that you're out, which I love, you're outspoken on social media. I think you had some post on Instagram that I kind of piggybacked on, and then you said about it. But what's the deal with social media, Instagram, particularly with makeup? What is it getting wrong?
1: Wow. Well, and we're right? Yeah. <laughs> um. Well. Okay. So I think we're you know we're living in a time with like what seems like infinitesimal choice, but in incredibly narrow channels. So Instagram started as a, a an organic and exciting space for people to share, especially because of hashtags. And you know you do a hashtag as something. And you'd immediately see what other people are looking at, and, it, and there was a sense of, I guess, the way Clubhouses at the moment, their early doors, pioneering spirit of sharing, um, and very rapidly that became um, too big to do organically, and you you income the algorithms, and with algorithms, um, they didn't mean to set off as as will dominating evil things, but. Algorithms only show you only show you what you've just seen. You know, they only show you more of the same. Well, and it's, a, it's a kind of
0: censorship, right? They're telling you what absolutely. to look at, right?
1: Absolutely. And whilst sort of under the guise that it's obviously what you want to see because you've just seen something like that, but as we all know, like repeat, you know, repeating the same patterns is a form of madness, and sort of seeing the same thing over and over and over again is going you off the edge of a cliff. I mean, you know, and the, and the problem with that is, is, that has created its own genre. You know, the the endless, um, you know, cut crease eyebrow selfie. Uh, oh you know, it, it it that has created a currency in not veering off the tracks. You know, it it because you're rewarded uh, as the algorithm does reward the same, more of the same. Um, that has naturally created the phenomena of really just the same forever. And and because of that, that dominates the market. And then you get a metric which is don't change, just do the same, repackage it, you know, bring out another palette that's just exactly the same, but it's just got a rejiggled sort of um a safe cue spectrum in it. And and so that that more of the same, the same but different, has been sort of mantra for the last ten years. And I think because of that, you know anything that is unique gets unless it stands out and gets followed and uh, you know shared never gets seen so you have these amazing artists and unique small accounts of uh, people that would desperately love to show their work and get seen and recognition or you know just to share and they'll never get seen because of the algorithms only supporting the larger accounts that are churning out the same thing um, so the algorithm is, is really
0: the root of, of evil in social media?
1: I, I think it it's become one of the enablers of the root of all, all all uh because it's basically setting the standard that in if you don't do this, you know, if you don't do the cut crease and the multi-layered sort of... Who the um, fuck
0: wants to wear a cut, uh, sorry my language, but a cut crease? It's like, it's one thing and it's not even that great of a thing. Like, how did that even become such a, you know what I mean? like you well, said i think,
1: I think what, what happened was um the minute you could do a selfie so the minute they did that so let's go back to the sort of the camera in the phone so before the camera in the phone there was no self there was no I, I, I culture it was you were reporting on what you saw you know you weren't behind the camera looking out you weren't in the picture you were, you know unless somebody pointed a camera at you and you You know, you were in the picture because someone took a picture of you. You were not in that picture. So you weren't making yourself the center of the the product. You know, you were reporting. So then the minute camera came into a phone and you got the reversible element of the selfie, you could be the center of what you were creating. And because of that, and because, you know, obviously if you don't use a selfie stick, you can only get arm's length. So you can't get your body in, you can only get your face in. Suddenly, all of a sudden, married out with Instagram, and suddenly the marketplace becomes the face. So then what are you going to sell? What are you going to sell on that marketplace? Well, makeup. So makeup beauty industry went through the roof. It succeeded fashion because the new fashion um, you know, wasn't the body, it was the face. So if you're going to sell products so on the marketplace of the face, you've got to sell more makeup. So let's have makeup looks that I've got not Three products, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, And it's always a bit like when you get Gillette <laughs> shavers and you get, you know, only two blades. Why not have three blades? They'll you know, shave closer. Get four blades, get five blades. So how many blades can you get on a razor? 20
0: blades.
1: Like, 20 blades and then it's a size and you're kind of like shaving your face into a, a fine face wedge. It's the same thing with makeup. It's like the face is groaning under the weight of product. But obviously the more products, the more... Selling. i so, never uh, thought
0: know, about this this makes so much sense
1: yeah so that 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 defines the look the look was more product more makeup more so instantly that kind of marries up with the you know the sort of the kardashian look and the you know the the you know there's so many products there and and, it, and it's now a, there's it's so many
0: brands there's so many brands yeah. skincare and makeup Anybody who's ever worn it has a right to now have um, a brand, and then it's like there's so many that there's actually none. It's like,
1: well, I think this is. This, I mean, it's a, it's a natural thing. I mean, at, at the end of the day, as well, is as we're learning and know and are in a you know climate emergency, growth is not the answer. Exponential growth doesn't work. You can't just keep building. You know, a building will reach its natural point before it falls over and that's what we're seeing obviously in in everything in our lives you know so makeup as we know it at the moment uh, especially on instagram and the world of that um motif and the driving force behind it has got to the point where it's turning in on it it has turned in on itself i truly believe that it you're sort of seeing the 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 death of it now um and and rightly so. And also it had to happen. I think it had to happen because, you know, makeup had never before been an accessory. You know, it was always everything that was auxiliary to the to the, you know, clothing like shoes, bags, sunglasses, scarves, phone cases. But makeup had never been an accessory before. So it's had its it really had um Excelled into becoming the the, you know the desirable accessory you know that the eyebrow at the moment the lip at the moment the eye shape at the moment the cut crease at the moment became a new way of of um, accessorizing Uh, and because it's so accessible you know it it you could get quite a good palette for something that didn't cost very much and look current and that had never been a currency before you know makeup had never been a currency before so it became something that was brilliant because it did actually it did, what it did do is it made people have an access into transformation, which I always believe an extent, you know, an absolutely wonderful thing to be able to transform. And it did give people escape and it did give people the tools to be uh, in ever, you know, in that moment, you know, a part of something and a movement and, and an experimentation and transformation. But I think what it has done also is created a series of motifs that, uh, and I'm, what I mean by motifs is, you know, the very particular eye shape and eyebrow shape that 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 kind of unified people into just one um, look, which one is kind of ironed down. Yeah, it, it, you know, just yeah, one identity, and nothing else is allowed. You know, and I think right. that it's become it's you know it's like the you know the Google of of faces, and and. And it's just whoever can be on that first page is Google. and, and, and it doesn't, there's a, a myriad of incredible, extraordinary, unique beauty out there, and it's not being seen. Uh, but that's why I believe that in a way, the, the platform and the look and everything has kind of imploded, because people that, you know, people aren't that. They're dimensional. They've got three million sides to them. They want to be something different every day and they're sick of seeing it. So it will turn in on itself and we'll look back on this time. as a very strange uh, moment, but it's, yeah. It know, feels definitely... strange to me
0: now. I can only imagine looking back, it's just going to be like, oh my God, can you believe that was what it was at the time? I'm ready it's, for yeah. it to
1: I explode. Mean, it has. I mean, I think it's just that convenience is always, a winner you know and at the moment there is i mean that's why i think clubhouse is doing really well because it feels so different and it's not driven by the face you know it's just voices so people are immediately free of the um the uh you know the obsession with artifice Um, yeah i mean it, it will change you know everything gets monetized very quickly and i'm sure people big brands will jump in and start Monetizing their clubhouse spaces and stuff, but right now it's Maverick and it's early, and it's not about the artifice and it's not about you know the way you look. So it, it's it's doing really really well. So I, I think that's a really good indication of how fatigued people are of being told how to look or feeling how that what they have to live up to, um, I, you know, and and it's yes definitely a burning platform that's already on fire.
0: You heard it here first, folks.
1: I hope so. If not, I'll give the match. I'll supply the matches, you know.
0: Alex, I could talk to you forever and learn so much. I have one last question that I ask everybody who's on the show, and I never ask it in the same way twice. Classic dyslexic. You'd think if I only had one question I had to repeat every time, I would figure out how to say it correctly and read it. But I don't. (laughs) If you were able to step into a magic time machine and meet your younger self. When and where would you do it, and what would you say?
1: Oh wow! It's in, I can only have, and I can only pick one point in time.
0: There's no rules on that. <laughs> Obviously, I'm not going to tell you to have rules. I mean,
1: it's really funny because I often feel like I revisit my younger self constantly um, because I see i i see i I have this theory actually that you're very old uh you have a different ages that you you might not be physically but you are mentally and i felt very mature and earnest and really serious when i was 15 like way more serious and earnest and um and heavy uh and and i felt like i was in my 40s when i was Fifteen, and then I feel like you know, in my twenties, I felt like I was six, and then when I yeah, I'm nearly fifty now, and I feel like um, I sort of almost feel free of age. I feel like a sort of uh, uh, incredibly naive and and happy to be wrong all the time and learn. So I I think I would probably I would probably actually go back to a point in time when I'd left art college. And I'd been, you know, the captain of my own ship, a work totally and utterly self uh, sufficient with my artwork, exhibiting as an artist, but had to had to earn money. So I went to work in a beauty department because I'd been working at the weekend in the body shop and I'd been doing stuff uh with with makeup in the in the body shop department, uh of the makeup department and somebody went into uh, I think it was the area manager went into a beauty hall and I needed a job and she said you should just come and work for us you know you you you're creative you're artistic uh I said yeah I don't know anything about makeup she said oh no it you know you you'd slot in really well you know you, you could be creative in your way there and I went there and I suddenly felt like the biggest fish out of water because I was in a beauty hall uh surrounded by really beautiful, uh, beautifully made up, mainly women uh, who presented themselves in a very particular way and had and I came in with shaved off eyebrows uh, black, blackest black hair you can imagine um, piercings uh, (laughs) I absolutely did not fit in this beauty hall environment and I suddenly went from being very confident in my ability as an artist to really judging myself like I didn't and I for somebody that is always flown by my own rules I suddenly felt kind of overwhelmed by self-doubt um that I because there was just so many things I didn't understand about beauty that I was being told was was what beauty was and I think that's where my kicking against or re or wanting to represent or re-represent what beauty is it came a lot from being put in an environment where I was being told to fit in or I felt that I had to fit in or I felt that I was really not beautiful uh, in any way because I didn't look the way every single brand and every single counter stuff was sort of echoing you had to be so I think I would probably go back to that indecisive year which was really miserable and then I, I suddenly thought you know Fuck this, actually, you know, I I've got an opportunity here to work on this amazing makeup counter and be alternative. And actually what happened is is the rest of history really is that I, right. I started to make make um artwork out of the makeup and I became a display artist for that company, uh globally creating artwork for for the brand as well. But it was and they really championed the fact that I was like I was working for them and it, it became my um point of difference that i was it, Il-Maska? it no it that was shiwamura back oh, in the okay. day yeah and um it was it was re- very early on this is like early 90s and um yeah it was i would go back and tell myself not to doubt myself because i think it now it's so obvious and it was even to me then but it was it was, I did have a wobble. I really had a wobble because I was being pre- represented by what was classically beautiful, you know. And it it was almost like being back at school again, and not not feeling that I kind of fitted in with a, as a pretty girl or or a you know I was a I was an odd I was an odd bod. Uh, but I've you know it's about re- those stages where you have that wobble about your sort of belief of of what you are when you're swamped by other that all are yeah. chiming with the same sort of hymn. And I and I uh yeah, I definitely would go back and say, you do not need to worry here. You don't need to be thinner, prettier, all these worries that I had, you know. Um just just be okay. You know, it's okay. You you're you are what you are and that's that's enough.
0: I love that. Do you have time, Alex, for a quick game just to end it off on a little silly yeah. note? Okay,
1: I love games. Oh, I love games.
0: Um, what's the one product you really can't live without?
1: One product I can't live without. Actually, I have to say, if I'm being really producty, producty, I was going to say something like you know imagination or that, but right. when I'm talking about products. I would definitely say uh, Shuamora cleansing oil. Still, I'm still using it. It's from on 1995. <laughs> it's a
0: cult. It's just... I mean, I've, yeah, I remember it. I haven't seen it in a while, but it's totally...
1: Well, you can't get it. You can literally can't get it hardly anywhere. We have to scour the internet for it.
0: Who's your favorite makeup artist?
1: I would have to say, certainly Tom. Mm. Um, somebody that, when I was a tiny little girl, I went into our pharmacy, um, you know, we had a great big Boots pharmacy, and they had Shiseido. Uh, and I remember seeing the iconic, you know, Serge imagery, and not knowing what it was at all. Didn't even know it was make it, but I said to my mum, and she remembers me, because I used to make her go and see it every time we went into the town. Uh, I don't know what that is, but I want to be it. And mm. I said that, when I, apparently, when I was about
0: six. Favorite neighbourhood in London?
1: Oh well, you know I've just moved from London, but it's always got to be where I've spent the last twenty five years, which is southeast, which is Peckham,
0: southeast London. Favorite fancy high tea?
1: Ooh, favorite fancy high tea. Oh, that seems so far away right now. Um, Oh, I used to love. Really love going to the Wolsey in London, which is favorite. the old Wolsey showroom, which is the Art Deco and just beautiful.
0: I love that restaurant. I was, I like, I always I go do. for brunch when I'm there or breakfast. Oh, I know. A oh, good one. Okay, um, what's the best British cuisine?
1: Oh, I'm not an Eng- an Anglophile at all. I'm quite ashamed a lot of times being English because we're just a mess. <laughs> um, what we've done to the world is appalling, um, but. English cuisine, oh, oh, gosh! I very rarely think about English cuisine. I much prefer Japanese. Um, okay, so
0: then, what's the best? What's your favorite Japanese then?
1: I have to say that I do really like sushi. Uh,
0: what's the best place for art in the UK?
1: Um, well, I do. I think the Tate always strives to be progressive, and I think their new spaces in the Tate. Tanks in uh, Tate um, Modern uh, are fantastic because they've they've opened enough spaces now that can have a high turnaround of of emerging uh, artists instead of you know the kind of the the ones that are just crowd right. pullers. Uh, so the Tate Tanks is fantastic and also can have dance, which is super important, and open it up to you know different disciplines and not just be crusty old painters that people go oh yeah you know
0: what's the worst thing someone can say to you when meeting you for the first time
1: um that i smell
0: (laughs) (laughs) agree that would be really bad
1: that would be bad because people normally say god you smell great because i'm obsessed with perfume beyond almost beyond anything i'm obsessed with perfume and i've created my own perfume and or that, you know, a, a bit of a mess, you know, I've never, uh, you know, like inertia frightens me. The idea of neither one way or another, having no lasting impression at all. Uh-huh, just nothing. Really nothing I, I'm sure yeah. that,
0: that probably never happens with you. I can guarantee you. What's the worst um, excuse you've ever given?
1: The worst excuse I've ever given. Oh God. I'm classic at excuses. You should ask my partner. Um, so yeah, when I first, um, I was quite anaemic as a child, which I, you know, I also kind of loved because I love vampires, so I was quite happy to be very pale. Um, but I remember, um, and I also had a heart arrhythmia, so I went to school wearing way too much blusher one time, uh, and I was only about seven, and I just experimented. I loved makeup from a very very early age. I used to always experiment, play with it. But look like a dog's dinner at seven in makeup for sure. <laughs> and I ended up in school in really thick rouge. I can only use the word rouge because it wasn't even blusher. It was like some cream rouge. Nice. It was so outrageous. And everybody started to tease me mercilessly in the playground about um, having makeup on because it was a ludicrous to them. And I just, I just started to, to cry and said, I, you, I have a disease. i said actually i have a disease which is called anemia and i have to wear makeup to balance out my skin tone and everyone's like oh no i'm still really bad for you i'm so sorry you know classic seven six year old i have a disease you know really and you
0: you were already looking for balance you know it just
1: you see there it is is.
0: is. (laughs) what's your favorite paint color
1: um, no, I love saying that because I, I, <laughs> I love painting everything black. Um, what's my favorite paint color? Oh, God, maybe one that's not been invented yet. Maybe one that I have to invent.
0: Something um, black.
1: But, but, well, it would be a black rainbow. I'd like to invent black rainbow color. So I love um, the closest thing to that is like when you get, you know, petroleum on puddles.
0: And then the final mm. question is, what's your least favorite lip color?
1: Oh. <laughs> Only one? Uh, no, okay, my least favorite lip color is one that makes, oh God, I know exactly, I can I can sum it up, but I can't tell you what it's hooped by or what it is. But it's this kind of shimmer that has a coldness to it that actually makes your mouth look smaller than it ever could possibly be. Uh, And it's like a sort of, it's like a purple transparent thing. It was around probably in the early 80s. A lot of people wore it. Mm. And it, it sort of, it did nothing for anybody other than, I think my mom had it. And it was like a sort of transparent purple shimmer. So I don't know what that color is, but there was also years and years and years ago when I very 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 first bought lipstick rimmel did this thing called heather shimmer and it, you were really defined by the two lipsticks that were their predominant shade which was this heather shimmer and black cherry black cherry all the goths wore heather heather shimmer all the sort of um uh, sporty girls or wow. you know you know girls that were um more trendy wore so you kind of defined like, were you Heather Shimmer girl or were you a Black Cherry girl? And I actually did own both of them, uh, and I felt quite like, well, I'll mix them together, and then I got this kind of Heather Black Shimmer that ended up being really odd. So I sort of sort of felt quite proud that I'd taken both genres and mixed them together and made some kind of flurry that I used to put on my lips. It's kind was, of a uh, metaphor Black. for
0: your life. It sounds like.
1: I think that was it. I think right, right there I was defined by my mixology.
0: Oh, my gosh. Alex Box, I can't thank you enough for agreeing to come on my oh, podcast. I really think that you are you just too. so a- awesome It's the only way oh, I can say it.
1: Well, I've really, really, really enjoyed it. And, and thank you for for thinking of me in the first place. It's really A real pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Um, All right. Well, I hope to talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
1: Take care. Bye-bye.